The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you're such a majestic God, so patient, long-suffering, so kind that you would speak to us. Lord, many times we don't want to hear what you have to say. It confronts us. It offends us. But Lord, every time we hear from you, it's love. It's your love. You draw us to yourself. So Lord, today I'm praying that you would dive deep into our hearts, that we'd be humble enough to give you a real listen, that you'd be kind and gentle in exposing us to ourselves all, Lord, so that we could be more grounded in the gospel and what you've done for us, and that Jesus, who he is and what he's done, he would just heal us, transform us. As we trust in him, we'd be more like him. Please do that today in us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So we're concluding our study through the book of Jonah, and you know, you, you read chapter four and you almost think, that's not how you're supposed to end a story. Did anybody else think that? Jonah had just experienced every preacher's dream. I was just kind of imagining preaching through Los Angeles or something. And then the whole city believes God and repents. I'd be like, you know, yeah, right? I mean, and, then, and that's where we should end. Praise the Lord, you know, amazing. And then you read chapter four, it's almost disappointing. Jonah's not just not celebrating, he is pathetically, horribly angry. And maybe you smirked as you heard of his anger, especially his self-pity. I mean, he seems ridiculous, right? And, and then you just ask, why is this in here? Why, why did you end the story this way? Well, there's, there's two reasons it's in here. One reason, it's in here because it's true. The Bible describes life as it is, not how we think it's supposed to be. And this is what Jonah was like that day. In fact, this is what God's people are like sometimes. And now it starts to get uncomfortable. Why is this chapter in here? This chapter is in here because this is what we're like. In Jonah, we see ourselves. And so we're supposed to learn about ourselves and our heart towards God and our heart towards others from this chapter. I just, you know, studying through it this week, I just got to warn you, it's not easy. God's going to elbow us. He's, he's going to confront us with this chapter. He's going to kind of hit us right where it's vulnerable. So I, I think we need to walk through three things together from this chapter. Number one, our anger. Number one, our anger. I mean, nothing makes us more angry, angry than when we're already angry and someone confronts us about our anger, but that's what's going to happen. <laughs> we think about our anger. Number two, we're going to think about the struggle between our anger and God's compassion. The struggle between our anger and God's compassion. And then number three, we're going to think about the remedy, how God's compassion kind of overtakes our hearts, submits us to himself. So first, our anger. We'll be looking at verses one to four, especially here. Like we said, you'd think Jonah would be ecstatic. Instead, he's angry to the point of this, this dark, discouraged depression. He actually tells God he would rather die 
than see Assyrians repent and be spared the judgment they deserve. Jonah's angry. Who's he really angry at? It's, it's not even the Assyrians, is it? He's angry at God. He's angry at God. What's going on? Well, let's just back up. Let's ponder for a moment. Haven't you noticed before in others first, it's easier to see it in others, strong, repeated, maybe excessive emotional responses where it occurs and you're like, that was a little too much. It's repeated. It's like, it's like there's a certain issue. You hit that. It's like a button. Woof. Anger. Okay? If you're, if you're self-aware, have you ever noticed it about yourself? Have you ever had a response to something and you looked at yourself and went, I think that was over the top. And then in that aspect of your life, it, it happens. It, do, it doesn't just happen once. It's like this condition in yourself, your anger. These kind of emotions are telling us something about our hearts. They're telling us something about our hearts. We could call it like we're hearing the voice of the mind of the heart. If maybe that's too abstract, but I just I'm thinking here we have we have an aspect of what we believe about God with our external minds, right? But the way your heart actually responds to the circumstances of the world what really comes out of you, <clears throat> doesn't that kind of show you what you really believe in that moment? Let me, let me give you one example. Anxiety. Anybody ever struggle with anxiety? You feel anxious? Okay, the rest of you, you're not telling the truth, right? Anxiety. Anxiety. Yeah, we, we get it. So I'm a Christian. I, I feel anxious sometimes. What's my external mind? What's the, the top of my head? What do I believe about God? Oh, God is sovereign. God is good. He does everything for my good according to his purposes. I can trust him. I have peace, right? That's what I believe. And yet, when I wake up in the morning, I'm anxious. What am I really believing? Unpack your anxiety. What are you believing? You're basically a practical atheist. It's all up to you. You're not good enough. Run for the hills. That's what you're actually believing in that moment. Do you see the contradiction? between our external minds and, and how we're actually functioning in life. It, the more you look for this, you, you see it everywhere, right? How many of you believe, oh, I should love others? In fact, we believe it so much, it's like, I should always love others. Except somehow in that one moment, you really didn't believe in loving others. You were believing something very different. Are you awake to the real mind, the mind of your heart? This is what's happening in Jonah. Like, with Jonah, the issue here is anger. Anger. And I want to propose to you this idea. Inordinate anger. So inordinate, it's like it's over the top. It's continued. It, inordinate anger exposes often idolatry. I want to unpack that with you for a second. Inordinate anger exposes idolatry or continual anger. It's always just simmering there. It exposes idolatry. What do I mean? Well, what is idolatry? You don't need a metal statue to be an idolater. You know that, right? Idolatry is when you take anything that isn't the real God and put that in his place. Two things to understand about idolatry. Number one, idolatry is the fruit of sin. 
What is the Bible talking about when it's talking about sin? If you go back to the very beginning, just like Adam and Eve, here's our sin. Number one, we believe the lie that God's not good. Do you hear that already? He's not going to satisfy me. Number two, you believe the lie that his word is not trustworthy. You can't really believe what he says. If you buy those two things, he's not good, his word's not trustworthy, you will replace him with a counterfeit. I would propose to you that every time you sin, that process happened. Every time you disobey his command, that's how that sin is expressed. God's not good enough here. I really can't trust his word. I need to, I need to step in myself. We replace him. That's an idol. And so idolatry is the fruit of sin. Number two, idolatry is often about ultimate things. Here's what I mean by that. Your heart is a, desi is a desire factory, right? You long for things. Here are some of the core things everybody wants. You need a secure identity, don't you? This is who I am. Welcome, sufficient, good enough, in, identity. Number two, you need hope. You want, you want the certainty that something good in the future is around the corner. Number three, you need security. <clears throat> you want to be safe. Number four, you need satisfaction. You want to be happy. Number five, you need an authority for truth. How do I know what life's about? How do I know right and wrong? Who is to be our ultimate on each one of those needs? Only God can give you the identity you need, the hope, the security, the satisfaction, the source of authority. Only God. And when you take anything else, even if it's a really good gift, and put that in God's place, that's an idol. And Jonah's anger here is revealing something to himself. He's protecting an idol of the heart. I want to show you now in case you're not convinced. Look at verse 1. Verse 1 says, chapter 4, it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And there's a little tiny number 4 next to the word exceedingly. Everybody see that? If you look down at the bottom of the page, you probably need glasses or a microscope to read this. It says, Hebrew, it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. So what is this line saying? What God did in bringing Ninevites to repentance, Jonah thought it was evil. Do you hear that? Back in chapter 1, God said Nineveh was evil. So Jonah needs to call out about it. Now, due to Jonah's message, Nineveh's repented. And Jonah says, God, what you did is evil. In fact, it says exceedingly evil. It's as if Jonah is saying, God, what you did to forgive Nineveh was more evil than their sin against you. Jonah's heart, his mind would say, and he said this earlier in the book, I worship Yahweh. I fear Yahweh. And his heart says, Yahweh's not worth worshiping. Do you see the difference? He said, I worship Yahweh. I fear Yahweh. And now his heart says, God is wrong. Wow. Ask yourself, where does your heart tell you God is wrong? God, you're wrong. 
Listen, if you think God is wrong, what standard are you using to judge him? You've got an idol. There's a counterfeit God right there. Number two, you're looking at Jonah's idolatry that's exposed by his anger. Jonah misuses God's words against him. So Jonah says in verse two, uh, you prayed to the Lord and said, oh, Lord, is this not what I said? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew your gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Jonah is both very right and very wrong. He's right in that God is gracious and merciful and forgives when people repent, right? True. But if you go back and look at Exodus, Exodus 34, this is, this, is from, this is the text Jonah's quoting from. If you go back and look at Exodus 34, you, you think of the context there. Israel, the people of God, have just made a golden calf. They've become idolaters, and they're worthy of God's wrath. Moses prays for Israel, and God reveals his character. Look what God says in Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Now, did you notice the difference between what Jonah said and what Exodus 34 said? Jonah conveniently left out that part of the end about God's justice. He left it out. So he accuses God of just being this kind of ignorant mercy with no justice. But look at what Jonah's doing. Jonah's avoiding the part of Scripture that's inconvenient for what he wants to believe. And he's using one part of the Bible to vindicate and excuse himself while ignoring the parts that would confront him. What's more popular than that? Jonah's slandering God with God's own words. So he's serving an idol of his own heart, isn't he? So he thinks God's wrong. He misuses God's word. And then he just despairs of life itself. Says, life's not worth living, right? Please take my life from me. I'd rather die. We, we have to stop right here and ask this question. What, what makes your life worth living? What is it that without this, if you lose this, you think, I lose everything? That right there is a functional God for you. You serve it. You need it. What's Jonah's functional God? Well, we saw this back in chapter 1. Do you remember? Jonah, Jonah identifies first as a Hebrew. Jonah's idol was his ethnic, political, religious identity. It works out like this. For Jonah, in his mind, we Israel deserve God's grace because we're more theologically accurate, we're more religious, and we're more moral. And therefore, with that perspective, he then thinks the Assyrians should not receive God's grace because they are foolish idolaters and wicked beyond description. Isn't that what Jonah's doing? Of course you give grace to us. We know the right thing. 
we do the right thing. And no way should you give grace to them. They are evil and undeserving. And you know, there's a grain of truth. Let's not judge Jonah too quick. I mean, the more Assyria, Nineveh is a substantial city here in Assyria. Assyria was the terror of the ancient world. Um, They celebrated torture, slaughter, gore. The more you study about ancient Assyria, the more you can understand why Jonah hated them. And they were a terrifying threat legitimately to Israel's well-being. They were awful. But Jonah forgot something. It was, it was right there in the text, Exodus 34, that he had mentioned. What did he forget? He's, he's, he's pounding on how undeserving Israel is. But what did he forget about Israel herself? Israel's undeserving too. Assyria's undeserving because of their wickedness and their idolatry. But who is it that's not idolatrous? Who is it that's not wicked? He forgot Israel is undeserving of God's grace as well. So here's the ironic, ironic truth. Jonah longs for judgment to fall on the Assyrians for their idolatry and their wickedness. And yet as he's outraged that God gives them some forgiveness, he's exposed by his own anger as being an idolater just like they are. Wow. Jonah has invented a pretend God who kind of owes grace to one group of people and would be wrong to give it to another group of people. And and that's just a God of Jonah's projected desires. That's That's not the real God. Because God's grace, what's God's grace? Undeserved love and favor and blessing. Undeserved, that's the key word. Undeserved love. Grace, by definition, is undeserved. And therefore, God owes it to no one. But because it's undeserved in God's kindness, God can show his grace to whoever he desires. True? True. Do you deserve God's grace? Do you have the right to be bitter or jealous or angry when God gives that grace to someone else, even your enemy. Confronts has done it. So as Jonah, Jonah's idol begins to fall, what pumps out of him? Anger. He feels like he has nothing to live for. His idol's falling, life is over. It's just exposing his idolatry. Someone once wrote this quote. I cannot find who wrote it, but I think it's really important. She wrote, we protect our idols. The real God protects us. We protect our idols. The real God protects us. When God bumps Jonah's idol, what comes out of him? Anger. Because he's protecting his sense of identity and meaning and purpose. Anger. But look, and and so he protects his idol, but look what God does for him. God protects Jonah. Look at, how, look at how the living God responds to his idolatrous prophet. You know, if it was me, right? God's already been really patient with this guy. The guy rebelled. He went the wrong way. God put him in a fish. He got vomited out. Finally, he obeys. He's going back to his old rebellion again. If you were like God, I mean, thank God you're not God. Amen. Thank God I'm not God. Amen. Bad God. But if you were God, wouldn't you be like, enough of you? 
and your pathetic whining. You might want to say, you want to see justice idol worshipers deserve? Okay. Instead, what does God do with Jonah in verse 4? He just asks him a question. Do you do well to be angry like this? Is it right for you to be angry like this? Jonah, look underneath your anger. What are you living for? And you know, here at this point of the chapter, Jonah won't even ask, answer his question. He will not even answer his question. Aren't we like that sometimes? We get so offended, so bitter, so angry, so self-justifying, we don't even want to open up to God's grace. We don't even, we don't even want to hear about it. Self-pity can be a really tasty poison, can it? Really tasty. Really poisonous. What have we learned so far? See this question, God asked Jonah, do you do well to be angry? Shouldn't we ask ourselves this question sometimes? Are you offended? Is your heart rate going up? Are you angry again? Why? Do you do well to be angry? What's under there? What are you trusting in? What are you expecting? What are you living for? What idol are you protecting in your life? You got to spend some time with this. You got to pray. You got to ask the Lord, maybe get out a notebook. What idol do you tend to protect in your life? It could be comfort. Sometimes uh, you're raising small children and they keep having needs and you love them and you love them and you love them and all of a sudden you're angry. Why? They're just being children because they got in the way of your comfort. Does that ever happen? Something like that? I know it's small, but you're, you're angry, you're irritable, or, or self-autonomy, you want to be in control, or the idol of being validated, praised, accepted by others. When it doesn't happen, you're crushed. You're not just disappointed, you're crushed. Or a political idol. This determines life. No compassion for anybody else who sees anything different. No compassion. You say, but they're wrong. Were the Assyrians wrong? Being the perfect parent, having the perfect spouse. There's a million idols. But here's the thing. When your idol bumps, you're going to get angry. Somebody bumps your idol, you're going to get angry. Okay. We protect our idols. God protects us. If we belong to God in his love, you know what he's going to do with us? And sometimes it gets really uncomfortable. He's going to weed out those little idols. He's going to weed them out. So now we see the struggle between our anger and God's compassion and his grace. So look at verse 5. Jonah went out of the city, sat to the east of the city, made a booth for himself there. He sat in it in the shade till he could see what could happen and become to the city. So you, you imagine going to the city to preach. They believe you. I mean, wouldn't you, wouldn't you think, well, Jonah would stay in there and, and keep teaching, teach them more, really just give everything he's got for them to know the real God. Instead, he's out. He's up on the hill. He wants to watch fireworks. He, he's hoping for Sodom and Gomorrah. He, he's got the binoculars. He can't wait for judgment. He's uncomfortable as he waits. 
He's in the Middle East. It's not like there's big trees for him to make a nice cabin. No, he's got some rocks, some mud, some tumbleweed. He's trying to get out of the sun. It's hot. Look at verse 6. God has compassion on Jonah. It's another miracle. I'm not going to try to explain how it could happen. It's a miracle. Verse 6, now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. I mean, if you, if you ever had, sat in like super hot sun, no shade, it's, it's a problem, right? It's a problem. And so to have this enormous plant grow up and just be perfect shade, oh, you would, you would, that would really be nice. It would really be sweet. You'd appreciate that so much. And due to its miraculous nature, I mean, Jonah's life has been very intense. He's been preaching for three days. He's physically and emotionally exhausted. This brings comfort and maybe even a sign of God's pleasure. So we love, do you, do you see how he feels about it? End of verse six. He was exceedingly glad because of the plant. And in Hebrew, that's just, he's really happy, super happy. He loves this thing. He loves this thing, okay? Look what happens, verse 7. When dawn came up the next day, this, is this one of the funniest phrases in the Bible? God appointed a worm. Wow. Talk about detailed control of life. Yeah, you think of a big God throwing a storm. You're like, okay, that's fitting. But here's a big God being like, that's right, little worm. You're the worm for the job. What's my job? Go eat that plant. Go eat it. That's a normal thing, right? Bugs eating plants. But this one's got a job. You eat that plant, man. The worm attacks the plant so that it withered. And God's not done. When the sun rose, verse 8, God appointed a scorching east wind. Oh, man, we live in Southern California. We know what Santa Ana's can be like, right? Just dry and hot. Jonah was kicking it one day. He's got a little shade, a cool breeze. Plants dead, hot wind. Oh, Jonah was faint. I mean, really, he's not feeling good. He's uncomfortable. You just back up and you think about this, this book, this book of Jonah. God has appointed a storm, a fish, a plant, a worm, and a wind. And they all obey. God's sovereign over his creation, isn't he? He's sovereign over it. The only thing in this story that disobeys God is what? It's his prophet. But God's not done with that. He's going to use the circumstances of creation to do surgery on his prophet's heart. God uses the circumstances of your life to do surgery on your heart, to weed out those little mini idols in there. So he's going to do this with an object lesson for Jonah's heart, verses 8 to 9, right? Jonah's, Jonah's wrecked. He lost his plant. He lost his shade. He's got hot wind. Jonah said, he asked that he might die. He said, it's better for me to die than to live. Look at God's question. Um, do you do well to be angry for the plant? What does Jonah say? End of verse 9. Yes, angry enough to die. <laughs> he 
He sounds kind of like a stubborn, kind of stubborn toddler or something. But come on, isn't this you and me? When God kicks around in your heart and your idolatry and your anger, are you right to be angry? Yes, I'm right to be angry. You see what you've allowed in my life? God's like, yes, I, I see it. I appointed the worm because I love you. Jonah, are you saying you would die for something for which you have compassion? Do you hear that? Jonah, are you saying you'd die for something for which you have compassion? You love that plant? You have compassion on that plant? Here's God's conclusion. It's the end of the book. The Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night, perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? <laughs> What's going on? It's an object lesson. Look, God just, Jonah incriminated himself, right? You have compassion for that plant? What's Jonah say? So much. So much. I love this thing. God says, you didn't work it. You didn't work for it. You didn't make it grow. It lived one day. But you're validated and passionately caring about that plant. Jonah says, yes. And God says, fine. How can you be angry at me and call me evil for having compassion on an entire city of people and cattle that I made and that are infinitely more valuable than your plant? Why does Jonah, or why does God talk about the cattle at the last verse? There's a lot of different ideas about this. He's an environmentalist. I don't know. He sure cut up a lot of cattle in the first five books of the Bible. Maybe, maybe it's about the economy of the city. God cares about the economy of the city. That could be. I think it gets at this. Everybody back then would realize a cow is infinitely more valuable than a weed. So God's just really pushing on Jonah. You're, you're that concerned about this one plant, but you didn't care if a bunch of, I mean, even cows are more valuable than your plant. What he's saying to Jonah is, your values are all out of whack. You don't love the right things in the right way. Your desires are wrong. You value the wrong things. Jonah here is all about himself. He is so full of pity, all he can see is his own need, his own hurt, his own pride. All he can see about Assyria is, what, is how they might harm him. That's all he can see. It's self-oriented. And God says, you have compassion on this, on this plant, but you don't have any compassion for things greater than that. Hey, even cows are more important than your plant. What about the people? What about the people? People made in God's image. Hey, people are more valuable than cattle and plants. Even hated Assyrian people. Our God, holy and righteous, he has compassion on sinners. Sinners. He has compassion on people who don't deserve his compassion. But they deserve our compassion because God has been compassionate to us. What's compassion? Sympathy, care, concern that leads to kindness. 
So you see this lesson from the plant. Hey, Jonah, your values are out of whack. You show compassion on the wrong things. Then you see this lesson from the wind, right? Jonah's feeling it. He needs help. He's got to escape danger. He's longing for grace to save him in trouble. And God's like confronting Jonah saying, you, need, you want grace when you need it, but you're happy to see it withheld from people who need it far more than you. Because see, Jonah's hot. He's faint. He's, he's having a hard time. But he belongs to God. He has a real faith. He belongs to God. God's going to keep him. Hasn't God been faithful to Jonah? Is Jonah in any eternal danger? Or is he safe? But he cares more about his own comfort than he cares about the eternal danger of others because he sees them as worse than him and his enemy. Who are your Assyrians? Who, who is it out there, those people, where you'd like to sit on the side of the hill, you'd want to say, let them burn and see God's wrath fall? Maybe it's an individual. Maybe it's a group of people. And this is like a value in our culture right now. Little small groups hate the other groups. You're not allowed to do that if you're a Christian. That's not an option for you. You know, this story is so powerful because the bad guys are the Assyrians, and they're, they're epic bad. <laughs> and they're just wretched bad. We could go into details on, you can see that the British Museum, artifacts from Assyrian culture, they're, they're awful. If God has compassion on those Assyrians, you can bet he has compassion on that group you don't like very much. And if you love this God who has compassion on you, what right do you have to not have compassion for those people? So here's the big ironic thing, right? How many of you, you love the grace of God? I mean, I love the grace of God so much. I live on the grace of God. But how many of you also, you sometimes hate the grace of God? That's what's happening in this chapter. Why, wait, why would we say that? Why would we hate grace? Well, here's one reason we have a, a love-hate relationship with God's grace. Number one, it humbles us deeply, deeply. Doesn't your heart want to say, you, you want to find the real bad guy out there, look at your own life, compare yourself to the bad guy, and doesn't your heart want to be like, well, compared to that mess, I'm a good person. Look at that mess, I'm a good person. Don't you want to do that? Don't you almost enjoy doing that? Wow, I've made it, at least compared to that. The reality of God's grace says you don't deserve his love any more than the worst person you can imagine. Because you're an idolater too, just in different ways. Have you loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? According to his word. I'm not talking about just the one time you really tried and you like put that trophy on a shelf. I'm talking about like every day, every moment. Have you loved your neighbor as yourself every time, according to his word? Are you quick to forgive? 
Are you quick to show compassion? I fail both of those tests. Right here, I fail both of those tests. I'm guilty. I need grace, which means really the only difference between me and Ponder, the worst person you could think of, when it comes before, to our standing before God, the only difference between me and that person is God has been kind to me. I need grace. It humbles me. It's hard to take that humility pill, isn't it? It's hard to take that pill. Second reason we don't like grace. If I live in a world where I'm a good person and therefore I kind of deserve God's favor, right? It's like me and God, we kind of have a, a deal going. And as long as I'm good and hit church, give a little money, be generally a nice person, God kind of, he has to give me kind of a comfortable life, right? Doesn't that sound nice? God, I'll be good if you'll make it easy. And some of us believe this. I know this because we, we talk about it, right? We talk about it. Life gets hard and you think, what happened? I was a religious person. Do you see what came out of your mouth? You deserved a certain kind of life because you had earned something. You weren't really desperate for grace. That's, that's all a myth, everybody. Here's another reason we don't like grace. If we're dependent on God's love, totally dependent on his grace, he now owes us nothing. He can do whatever he wants with us. We owe him everything. It's a second reason we resist grace. A third reason. God loves us so much, he won't give up on transforming our hearts. I'm angry, you know? I'm angry at life. Do you do well to be angry? Leave me alone. <laughs> can you feel it? Leave me alone. I want to be prideful. I it feels good to want revenge on this person. Do you do well to be angry? Are you living in light of my love for you? Stop. No, he won't stop because he loves you. He loves you. And you realize we protect our idols, but our idols let us down. They let us down. They kill us. Those things we put in God's place, they cannot satisfy your soul. They cannot give you what you're really looking for. The God of heaven and earth can. He can. And so in his love, he saves you by faith. And then he starts weeding out some little, little idols so that ultimately you will be satisfied and happy in him. It's his love. So we've looked at our anger, what that exposes. We've looked at God's compassion. Now I want to see the remedy, the fix. What is it that can change our hearts to actually want to give the compassion that God gives to us. Of course, the New Testament reveals the satisfaction to all of this. It answers all the questions. And one way to see it is just how Jesus talked this way. Jesus is the ultimate Jonah. Think of these parallels, right? Jonah was sent with a message to a totally undeserving people. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, took on flesh and was sent to an undeserving world. Jonah didn't want to go. Jesus went with all his heart. More than that, Jesus did not hate the city like Jonah did. Think about this. Jonah was in there. He preached to these undeserving people. Then he was out. Hates the city. What did Jesus do as he looked over the city of Jerusalem? The city that would crucify him. What did he do? 
actually wept over them. You read the Gospels, you know what the defining emotional quality of Jesus Christ is? Compassion. Compassion. And maybe you read that and you think of the kind old lady who's had a hard life and we all have compassion on her. Okay, fine. No, think of the evil person. Think of the chief tax collector. Think of that person you would not like at all. That's who Jesus had compassion on. Think of yourself. He has compassion for sinners. Jonah went outside the city to hope for, ju- to hope for judgment. Jesus was crucified outside the city to what? To take our judgment. Unbelievable. He actually prayed this. Have you read this before? Luke 23, 34. What does it say? As he's being crucified, Jesus says, you won't believe me. You read it yourself. Go ahead. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Isn't that just absolutely staggering? He's the judge who has every right to pour out his wrath upon them. And instead, what does he say? Forgive them. Forgive them. Unbelievable. How does this grace heal us? Number one, become a Christian. (laughs) Or remember that you're a Christian. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.20. You know, this theme of being angry at God, thinking God is wrong. 2 Corinthians 5.20, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. What's it mean to be reconciled? It's like the healing of a relationship. You know, we think of the human race. We turn against God in rebellion. God had to have wrath on us. He's just. And yet in his kindness and mercy in Christ, he turns towards us says, look what I've done for you in Jesus. Come home. Repent of your sin. Trust Christ. Be made right with God. Look at this trade. God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin. If you trust yourself to him, you can know he took your sin on the cross so that you could be called righteous And now that you're stamped with the righteous perfection of Jesus Christ, you are fit and welcome to be a child of God, reconciled to him. Just taste God's compassion, his kindness here in the gospel. Trust Christ. Saved by grace. But listen, when you're you're saved by grace, you're going to start to live a life of grace. Here's an example, Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. What's happening to anger? It's diffusing. It's going away. It's being put away. Verse 32, what's coming instead? Be, what's the next word? Kind. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Forgiving one another. And what's that standard on forgiveness? As God in Christ forgave 
you. What kind of forgiveness do you need from God? I need him to completely forgive every one of my sins or else I'm in big trouble. What kind of forgiveness do you and I, saved by grace, forgiven by God, what kind of forgiveness do we owe others? The same. This is a warning in other places in scriptures. If you don't forgive others, your heavenly Father won't forgive you. And the logic there is, we don't think you know the grace of God if you're not willing to try to give it. So powerful. But look, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Do you see here? Um, now that you're, your identity, do you see your identity? What is it? Verse 5.1, therefore be imitators of God as in Christ you are a child of God and you are loved. Think of that, how that answers all the needs of your heart. What's your identity? Child of God. Can it get higher than that? Can it get better than that? What's your security? Are you okay? I'm safe no matter what comes in the arms of my father. What, what about your future? Oh, he's going to lavish his kindness on me forever. He's given me Jesus Christ. I'm forgiven. I mean, every need of your heart is found right here in the gospel. And then because you are loved, what can you now do? Verse 2, walk in love as Christ loved us. How did he love you? Did he wait until you deserved it? Or did he love you while you were ungodly? That's the kind of love that's called for here. When you receive God's grace through faith in Christ, you will now be motivated to live a life of grace. But they don't deserve it, your heart says. I know. And there's a grain of truth. It's true. They don't deserve it. But what are you missing? Neither do I. Salvation by grace through faith in Christ, a life of grace, a perspective of grace. Look at that text from Matthew, Matthew 5.43. You've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor, hate your enemy. I say to you, what's he, what's he say to you? Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Why would you do that, 45? Because you're children of God. So that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven. Look what he does. He makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, sends rain on the just and the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't the tax collectors do that? Who do you see as the enemy? Because God has shown compassion on you, you must show compassion on them. It doesn't mean you don't say things are wrong. It's a whole host of other conversations. But here's the takeaway, right? God ends this book like this. Should I not pity Nineveh? And it just ends with the question. Why does it end with the question? God is saying to you, if you've known my grace, shouldn't you be excited to show that grace to others? And what's the answer? Yes. 
Yes. May we be better than Jonah in the sense that we don't just believe in God. We love what he loves. We love what he loves. There are many applications to this. I'm just going to give you a simple one. I guess I'll give you two. Number one, uh, this all happens in the context of prayer, doesn't it? God's talking to Jonah. Jonah's talking to God. We want to invite you if you want to. If you, if you need to pray that God will help you forgive someone, you want to pray for somebody you know who's not a believer, uh, we're, we're going to give you that space to do that, five to 10 minutes in here. If you want to go hang out in fellowship, that's great too. We need people to do that. We want to invite you to be in here and pray. And uh, a couple of us will stay in here and pray with you. I'd love to pray with you if you have any questions. Second thing, invite some people to church in the next coming weeks. This, this is not a sell. Why would I say that? Because if you have compassion on people, what do they need the most? They need Jesus. We're going to look at Jesus from the Gospel of Mark, and hopefully as people come into this place with our little church, they're going to see a community of grace and compassion from people saved by Jesus, and they're going to look at Jesus from his word. And that's probably the most loving thing we can offer to somebody. Let's pray. Father, you're confronting us. We're angry, we're vengeful, we're bitter. Sometimes we need to forgive. It's really hard. We don't want to. We pray that you thrill us, Lord, with the grace you give us in Jesus Christ and that we would be so satisfied in him and what you've done for us in him that we would actually even start to want to give grace to people who are difficult for us. Lord, help us to look underneath our anger and help us to just topple any idol we have in our heart that gets in the way of having Jesus Christ alone as our King. Do this work in us, we ask, in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.